Our scripture text this morning is Genesis 32. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn there with me? Genesis 32, 1 through 21. We're going to be taking a quick break from our Luke series today as a result of the icy weather and the spike in COVID cases here. But if you missed last week, in Sunday school we began a new series called Better Than I Thought. And this is the series uh, in which we explore passages that might be um, better than we thought, that, that after some reflection and time spending in it, that they were better than we had originally thought. And, and I think this is a great idea for a series, and, and I'm so glad that we're doing this in our Sunday school. But this passage this morning, Genesis 32 is exactly one of those kinds of passages. It's a passage that when we read it at first, we may not think much of it. In fact, we might focus on the next passage in Genesis 32, the passage where Jacob wrestles with God. But this passage is one of those passages that we can mine and mind and find gold in. And so it's, this passage is, comes right in the Jacob account in Genesis. And so if you know about Jacob, Jacob, he goes away and he serves his uncle Laban for 14 years with the promise of being able to marry one of his daughters. Um, And at the end of these 14 years, Jacob decides to return back to his homeland in Canaan. And so things there, they weren't always roses with Jacob and Laban. There was conflict. There was strife between these two individuals. And so they agreed to go their separate ways. And so where our passage picks up today is right on the heels of that. That Jacob and Laban, they've made an agreement together that at the heap of stones and the pillar, neither Jacob nor Laban would cross it, that they would be safe from each other. And so there's a covenant between the two. So Jacob, he leaves Laban, and he has Laban at his back, but to get home, he's got to go through Esau. And so that's where our passage picks up today, is in the story of Jacob and Esau, when Jacob is going home towards his land in Canaan. So I'll begin reading in verse 1 of Genesis 32. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants, I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I've become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 
200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. And he instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob, and they are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought I might appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. This ends the reading of God's word this morning. If you would, would you please pray with me as he seek his help to understand it. Father, we are grateful for your faithfulness to us. We're grateful for your word in which you've recorded the deeds that you've done in the lives of your people. Father, as we look into this account of uh, Jacob and Esau, Father, we ask that you would illumine our minds, that you would illumine our hearts, that we would be able to understand this, that we'd be able to see uh, your son Jesus, even in this passage. Father, help us to cling to your faithfulness to us. Father, we pray this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. Well, after my freshman year of college, I returned back to my home in Jackson, Mississippi, and I got a job at at Jackson Prep, a high school there in Jackson, and I was working as a maintenance worker that summer. I painted classrooms, I fixed things, really, I really just did whatever I was told to do there at Jackson Prep. So I was a 19-year-old college student, and I worked this job with other grown men who did this as their career. And so we were all very different people, all of us. Um, but one of the things I remember most about this job was, was kind of a unique thing about this job working there at Jackson Prep. Every day we would take a lunch break around the same time, and we would go to our break room. And in our break room we had this small TV, it only got one channel. And every day before lunch we would watch the same thing. We would catch the last few minutes of the Martha Stewart show, followed by Days of Our Lives, the soap opera. So I'm not kidding when I say that me and these other four grown men, we got into days of our lives a little bit. Um, We would come in from our lunch breaks, we'd immediately turn on the TV wondering who was going to betray who this week, or who fell in love with who, and just all these twists and turns of days of our lives. Today, I don't remember anything of it, but I remember watching it every single week with these men. And so that's exactly what soap operas are for, though. They're meant to draw you in. They're meant to entice you with these storylines of love and betrayal and and even murder. And they draw people in. And it's why soap operas are some of the longest-running TV shows of all time. And so here in Genesis, this story of Jacob, I think we have the makings of what could be a really, really good soap opera. Because the story of Jacob is filled with twists and turns, there's betrayal, there's character development. Um, And you're probably familiar with the story of Jacob and Esau in which Jacob defrauds Esau out of his blessing from his father Isaac. And so this passage today is 20 years after that happens. It's been 20 years since Jacob has defrauded Esau out of Isaac's blessing. In fact, it's been 20 years since Jacob's been to his homeland. And the last time that Jacob was in his homeland, this is what was said to him from his mother. 
She said, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Can you imagine that? Your brother comforts himself by planning to kill you. And then she tells him to go live with Laban. And then I'm quoting here again from Genesis. Until your brother's anger turns away from him and he forgets what you've done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. So before Jacob departs, his mother tells him, your brother's going to try to kill you. So you need to go away and I'm going to send for you whenever his anger subsides, whenever his anger goes away. And 20 years later, Jacob never received that message from his mother. So for all he knew, Esau still was furious at him, and he had this desire to murder Jacob. And so no doubt, Jacob, he's heard about all the power that Esau has accumulated. Esau has grown quite a bunch of wealth. And so Jacob, he leaves Laban, this conflict-ridden place, and he's headed towards his brother Esau. And so Jacob's really in this middle of this rock in a hard place that we know about so well. And so this morning, I want to see three things from this passage. We're going to be looking at God's faithfulness this morning. And so the three points that we have today is that God is faithful to his promises. God is faithful to prayer. And God is faithful in our pandering. So promises, prayer, and pandering. Let's look at our first point this morning. God is faithful to his promises. If you look down at your Bible at verses 1 and 2, this is what it says. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. So Jacob, he leaves Laban, and while he's on his way, it says the angels of God meet him. And so this is a really interesting part of this account. And I want you to really visualize, picture in your head what's going on here. Uh, the Hebrew construction for this word for the angels of God appears only one other time in the whole Old Testament. And it's in Genesis 28, four chapters before this. Um, so if you have your Bibles open, flip back to Genesis 28. And so if you recall Genesis 28, uh, Jacob, he has this dream. And this is dream about what he's going to see in the future. And in the dream, God makes a promise to Jacob. And this is the promise. It says it in verse 13 of chapter 28. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So that's the promise that God makes to Jacob in the midst of this dream. And it's a promise that's reminiscent of really all the promises that God has made in Genesis so far with Adam and Noah and Abraham. I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. So here we are back in Genesis 32. Jacob with Laban behind him, Esau in front of him, and he meets these angels of God again. The same angels of God that he sees in Genesis 28. And just imagine this, you know, we, we read the word angels and we think it might be one or two. We, we think of this, you know, picture of maybe Mary with, with uh, the angel there. It's just one angel. But Jacob looks at these angels and he describes it as God's camp. Um, this word camp here also means army in Hebrew. 
And so Jacob, he's not just looking at two or three or, or four angels. He's looking at an army of angels. And so Jacob, he, he's fearful of facing Esau. He, he sinned against Esau. And he's fearful of reaping the results of that sin. And yet God puts this huge reminder in front of Jacob, the promise that he made him at Bethel. The promise that he's going to be there to see him through and to give him what he's promised him. And so these angels are there. It's like God's saying to Jacob, hey, you think that Esau's going to be a problem? Well, think again. God's reminding Jacob that he's faithful to his promises, that he's got this army of angels that are going to carry him through. So let's look what happens next after he gets the reminder of this promise. In verses 3 to 8, And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. The messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid. And distressed, and he divided the camp, he divided the people there with him, and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. So after he has this encounter with this army of angels and the reminder of God's promise to Jacob, you would think that Jacob would be able to rally some strength, rally some courage here. And yet, what we see. Jacob sends messengers to Esau to let him know that, hey, Esau, I've acquired a good bit of wealth and that I'm coming to you. And so what he hears back is that Esau is going to meet him on the road. And by the way, he has 400 men with him. Um, It says that Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed when he heard this news. Now, we might hear 400 men and think, that's not a lot. Big deal, like... What, what, what's the deal about that? But if you remember back earlier in Genesis, Abraham went to war with 318 men against four different kings, and he won. So this is a, this is a battle about to brew, is what Jacob is thinking. He hears this, and he thinks Esau must be coming for war. And so what he does is he says, I'm going to split up my camp. I'm going to have two camps And that way, if Esau comes and destroys one of them, the other can get away free. And so these are not the actions of a man inspired by God. James Boyce, he says this of Jacob's actions. He says, I wish Jacob had been able to believe God at this point and turn and face Esau as the agent of God's blessing that God had called Jacob to be, but he was still fearful. See, Jacob, he doubted God. He doubted God's promises. And he let his fear of man, his fear of Esau, control him. And so instead of going forward knowing that God is with him, what does Jacob do? He he cowers. He cowers and he can think only of his sin towards Esau. And he thinks only how inadequate he is to face him. And so isn't the same true of us this morning? Many of us this morning who are paralyzed by our past sins, that we, we shudder when we think of them and we feel like Jacob, weak and inadequate, and we try to salvage whatever we can out of our sin. 
Some of us fear that one day the things that we've done, the people that we've wronged, they're going to come back to haunt us. Some of us here this morning, hoping that no one will find out about the sins that we've committed this week. We like to keep them locked up and out of sight. Perhaps this morning when we move to our time of confession and repentance, it was our first time that we repented this week of sins that we committed, but maybe we've been too shameful to approach God about. And so I read this passage about Jacob, and I can't help but think that that describes me. That describes exactly who I am. But just as Jacob had a promise there in Genesis 28, we have a promise as well too. And this is the promise that's for us. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so if you're in Christ this morning, don't be paralyzed by your sin. Take it to the cross and you're going to find abundant grace and abundant mercy there at the cross. This is what Hebrews 4 tells us. He says, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So don't let the shame of your sin keep you from going to God. We have a great high priest who has been, he's experienced what we've experienced with, and we can go to him with confidence. It's God's grace that allows us to confess with joyful hope and not embarrassment of our sin. And so just as God kept his promises to Jacob, he's going to keep this promise to you as well. So we've seen how God is faithful to his promises. Let's look at our second point this morning, how God is faithful to prayer. So in verses 9 to 12, we get this prayer of Jacob to God, and this is what he says. This is what he prays to God. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love of the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I've become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, Surely I will do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So Jacob, his solution for this problem with Esau was to split up his camp into two rather than relying on God's promise, relying on these um, angels that God has sent for him. And so now he does the only thing that he knows left to do. And it's kind of reminiscent of billboard, billboard Christianity that can be found here in the South. When all else fails, try prayer. When all else fails, try prayer. And so he prays to God. And it's a good prayer. And so I think there's five things that we can learn from this prayer, and I'll hit them really quick, these five things about this prayer. First, he addresses God by multiple names. By saying he's the God of Abraham, he acknowledges that he is the God of the covenant that was made with Abraham. By saying he's the God of Isaac, he's saying that this is the one true God. Isaac had no idols. This is the one true God, the God of Isaac. And thirdly, he defines him as the God who gave the promise to him. He starts to pray back God's words to him. You promised me this. Second thing we can see is in verse 10, he confesses his unworthiness. 
says, I'm one worthy to receive your favor. Third, he acknowledges the work that God has done in his past. He says, I had nothing, and now I have enough to make two camps. So he's looking at what God has done in his life. Fourth thing we can see is in verse 11. And then he petitions God to save him from Esau. He requests God that he save him from Esau. And then fifth, he prays back to God the promise that God made him. I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. You see, God, you promised me this. I hold you to your promise. And so this is a model way for us to pray. And so some of my favorite conversations are about prayer. I talk with prayer, about prayer a lot with students. Um, and I find that many of us, we can struggle with prayer because we're not really sure how to do it. And so this prayer by Jacob is a good place for us to start to go through and just pray through this um, back to God. Now, there's something else I want to make mention here, though, and it might be a little bit of a stretch. But the Jacob story has gone on for seven chapters now in Genesis, seven chapters devoted to Jacob up to this point. And this is the first time in the Bible that we have a recorded prayer of Jacob. First time. And so it's possible that Jacob may have prayed at other times in his life, but we don't have any of that recorded here. Jacob, he's received great visions, and not once do we know for sure if he's prayed in response to receiving them. Now, I might be speculating here, but could, the could this possibly be the source of Jacob's spiritual weakness here? Could Jacob's lack of faith be a result of lack of prayer? Regardless of what the answer is here in this passage, prayerlessness is certainly a reason why many of us lack faith today. J.C. Ryle says this. He, he has a book called A Call to Prayer, and this is what he writes in A Call to Prayer. I love this. I hold to salvation by grace as strongly as anyone. I would gladly offer a free and full pardon to the greatest sinner that ever lived. I would not hesitate to stand by their dying bed and say, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ even now and you shall be saved. But that a person can have salvation without asking for it, I cannot see in the Bible. That a person will receive pardon for their sins who will not so much as lift up their heart inwardly and say, Lord Jesus, give it to me, this I cannot find. I can find that nobody will be saved by their prayers, but I cannot find that without prayer anybody will be saved. To be prayerless is to be without God, without Christ, without grace, without hope, and without heaven. Let me say that one more time. To be prayerless is to be without God, without Christ, without grace, without hope, and without heaven. But prayer is an ordinary means of grace for us. It's a way in which God's grace is given to us. And we're called to pray. And without prayer, we're godless. We're spiritually malnourished. So Jacob here, he prays to God that he would be delivered from Esau. So the overwhelming theme of all of Genesis is that God, and really all, all of the Bible, is that God is faithful to a people who are often unfaithful to him. God's faithful to a people that are unfaithful to him. And we've seen it with Adam. We've seen it with Abraham. We've seen it with Noah. And now we see it here with Jacob. So far we've seen that God is faithful to his promise. God is faithful to prayer. And finally, our third and final point, God is faithful in our pandering. 
So in verses 13 to 21, I'll just summarize real quick for you. Jacob, he goes and he sends presents for his brother Esau. And it's, it's a lot of different animals, 200 goats, 20, 20 male goats, ewes and, and camels and bulls and donkeys. And so he sends them all over, over one at a time, not, not one at a time, but one section at a time. And drove by drove. And, they, and he tells his people when he gets to Esau to tell them that Jacob sends these as a present for you. And I'll read um, verse, 20, verse 20. For he thought I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. So this is such a roller coaster passage for Jacob. You know, it starts out with God reassuring Jacob of his promise. And then Jacob, he tries to provide for himself by splitting up his camp, by trying to have this self-preservation. Then you get this great prayer by Jacob, and you start to think, okay, Jacob, you're, you're, you're getting it. You're relying on God here. And then immediately, right after praying this, it's like he's back to providing for himself. And so essentially what Jacob does here is that he's pandering. He's pandering to Esau. And it seems like in the midst of God, or in the midst of Jacob asking for God's provision over him, he starts to provide for himself. He's plotting a way to save himself from Esau. And this is my story there's Esau's in our own life, and we try to plot and scheme our way through, all while ignoring these legions of angels that surround us. And so this is Jacob's solution, Jacob's solution to his problem. He sends 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 female camels and their calves, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. And why does he do this? Why does he send all these to Esau? I may, so that I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, perhaps he will accept me. Maybe he'll accept me with this gift that I've given to him. And understanding this changes the entire way that we should read the passage. There's a theologian named Derek Kidner who says this about Jacob's actions. Think about this, okay? The pagan approaches his deity as Jacob now approaches Esau. Jacob was approaching Esau like pagans approach their gods. See, pagans, they would try to give gifts to appease their angry gods. And Jacob, he's treating Esau the exact same way as the pagans would treat their gods. And so if we look at this and we look at Jacob's actions, we start to see that everything that he is doing towards Esau is as if Esau was a deity. In this, this same way that many unbelievers come to God. Now, deep down we know that we're guilty sinners, that we've offended God, that we're deserving of judgment and rather approaching God and seeking mercy. We often try to appease God by going about a checklist of works. We try to do things to ease God's anger towards us, to try to prove that we are worthy enough. However, there's only one true pathway to God, and it's been provided for you. It's trust in Jesus Christ alone that brings about salvation. It's not 200 goats. It's not giving money 
uh, as we sing in that song, it's not all my prayers and sighs and tears that can bear our awful load. It's only Jesus. Only Jesus can bear your sin. So it's trust in Jesus Christ alone that brings about salvation to us. And so there's nothing that we can give to God to appease Him. There's nothing that we can give to God to turn away His anger. And this is where we find Jacob. He's trying to atone for his sins against Esau. He's trying to cover that payment that he owes from his sin against Esau. And he does it with gift after gift after gift after gift. And so up until this point in Jacob's life, he's been a fairly self-reliant man. And so I believe wholeheartedly that God is using Jacob's weakness of self-reliance in order to strengthen his faith. And so the passage immediately after this one is the one where Jacob, he wrestles with God and he's strengthened through it. So perhaps in your own life, that the weaknesses and vulnerabilities that you have and that you see that, that God is using them in order to strengthen your faith, to make you more reliant upon him. And so what are these things? What are the weaknesses? What about the things that make you feel uncomfortable about your life? And how could God even be using that to make you more reliant upon him? I'll close with this story. There's a French novel called Les Mis. A few years ago, it was made into a movie. I never saw it, so I can't comment on the movie. I'm not sure how accurate it is, but um, the novel is about a guy named Jean Valjean. And Jean Valjean had just spent 19 years in prison for stealing a loaf of bread. And then he had some prison attempt, escape attempts, but 19 years in prison. And after his stay in prison, he ends up at the house of the local bishop, Bishop Muriel. And so against his maid's advice, the bishop, he invites him into his home, and he, let, he feeds him, he clothes him, he lets him sleep there in his house. And so in the middle of the night, Valjean, he gets up and he walks into the kitchen, he takes all of the silver forks and spoons, and then he leaves. And the next day, Valjean, he's caught with these silver forks and spoons, and he tells them they were given to them by the bishop. He tells the cops, these were a gift. But the police don't believe him, and they take him to the Bishop Muriel's house. And so they knock on the door, and Bishop Muriel opens it. He answers the door, and he sees that Valjean is there in handcuffs with these officers. And so the bishop, he looks at Valjean, and this is what he says. He says this to the man who just robbed him, who just left in the middle of the night. This is what he says. He says, ah, here you are. I'm glad to see you. But how is this? I gave you the candlesticks too, which are of silver like the rest, for which you can certainly get 200 francs for. Why did you not carry them away with your forks and spoons? And so when he says this, the police and Valjean are shocked. They are stunned by this answer from Bishop Muriel. We thought, surely he would say, there he is, arrest him. He stole that from me. But instead he gives them more. He gives them the candlesticks too. You see, Valjean, he betrayed Muriel's trust and he robbed him. And yet Muriel has grace on him. And he gives them even more silver. And so we are just like Jean Valjean. We betray God on a daily basis. We turn our backs on him. We try to provide for ourselves. We try to take advantage of him. And yet, like Jacob, 
and Valjean, we try to handle our situations alone, try to put it on ourselves. And God, like Muriel here, has grace on us. And so if you're in Christ this morning, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how many times you've done it. It doesn't matter if this is the first time you've even been caught or the thousandth time. There's nothing you can do to prevent His grace from being applied to you if you are in Christ. And so in the case of Jacob, God was faithful to His promises. He was faithful to His prayers, and He was faithful to His pandering. And so if this is true for Jacob... How much more true would this be for you? You see, Jacob, he had to step out in faith and hope that in the future one day all these things would be resolved. And yet we, on this side of history, on this side of the cross, we have the benefit of looking back. How do we know that God is going to do this? Because he sent his son to die on the cross for us, to redeem you and me from our sins. All we have to do is look back to the cross to know that God is serious about keeping his promises. Psalm 86 says that God is merciful and gracious, that He's slow to anger, and that He's abounding in faithfulness and love. And so my question for you this morning is, do you know this love? Do you know this faithfulness of God?